listeners. Welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim and I am the host of this program. What comes to your mind when you think of the sacrifices of the Old Testament? Have you ever imagined what it would have been like to offer a sacrifice described in Leviticus? Surely it would have been very holy, but at the same time, it would have been tragic because so many animals had to be killed. How many animals such as cows, sheep, or pigeons had to be killed? We can't count the number of times the priests sacrificed animals, shedding their blood, skinning, disjoining the bones, and burning the animals. The sanctuary would have been filled with the animal's screams and the smoke from burning them. What if this ritual is still happening today? Perhaps animal lovers would criticize and protest against it. When I was young, I had a hard time understanding why our loving God required people to give such a bloody sacrifice. Other than it being a pleasing aroma to God, I could not understand the meaning of the sacrifice. We'll come back to share more after our first song. Yeah. 
Jesus made Now the curse of sin Has no hold on me Whom the sun sets free Always free Once I read a book titled Jesus by A.W. Tozier, where he describes a time when he lived in Chicago, at a time when America was going through some hard times. Mr. Tozier talks about a notorious burglar who was being chased by the police. The police posted wanted signs all over, and the signs included a warning that he carried a gun and should be considered dangerous. The author wrote, There was a twisting cold smile on his face. However, the last picture of him showed that he couldn't commit crimes anymore. Why? Because it was a picture of him lying down with his toes facing upward and his body was covered in a white cloth. He was dead. At the end of the story, Tozier said, Sin ends with death. When a person dies, he cannot sin anymore. That is God's way of ending the sin. He ends sin by using death. In God's law, the cost of sin is death. Before Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, God clearly told them that they will surely die if they eat the fruit. Regardless, they chose to disobey and sin came into the world and now people cannot avoid death. But what did God do for Adam and Eve? He killed an animal and made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In the Garden of Eden, where death was not known, God killed an innocent animal. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The blood redeems sin. God redeemed their sin with the blood of an animal. 
This was the reason why people had to offer sacrifices with the blood of animals in the Old Testament. However, these sacrifices didn't completely redeem people's sin. They just delayed judgment. Therefore, there had to be another type of sacrifice that doesn't just delay the judgment, but that gives a complete forgiveness of sin. What was it? It was Jesus, the Lamb of God. God put the sin of men on Jesus, who is blameless and innocent, and God allowed a punishment of death, which is the cost of sin. Jesus willingly died on the cross for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10-12 through 12 says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Decimation of Death, Part 2, based on Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 66. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Vincent. John Calvin said that if Christ had only died a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. Unless his soul shared in the punishment, he would have been the redeemer of bodies alone. But Jesus isn't the redeemer of bodies alone because he took in the full condemnation of God. And because he took in all of it, including that condemnation of the soul, what it did was it culminated in him being separate from God. I'm just curious, as you, as you think about that, hopefully in awestruck wonder, isn't there part of you that, that I'm, I'm not going to explore this much, but that just makes you really feel sorry about the way that we so easily fall away from our love and our affection for God and, and the value of that relationship that was purchased with the blood of Christ? It was agonizing for Jesus to leave Him but just for a moment. And yet sometimes we, we can feel so comfortable and drifting away for even a season. I think, I think maybe it's because we, we haven't poured ourselves into experiencing the fullness of what that relationship with God really means for us. Isn't that incredible that, that, that just this moment, this, through all of the, the crucifixion, these horrible events, the thing that Matthew centers on and the thing that Christ cries out over is the fact that He has been forsaken by God. Why is it that God allows the Son to do this? Why would He forsake the Son? Well, it is due to the substitutionary nature of true love. True love is sacrificial. If you really want to have relationship with people, you will have to sacrifice. This is the nature of having relationship. You have to give to love. God, what He, he does in this moment is something that no other God does. And that's why I think God is love and no other God even pretends to be. It's because in this story, in this gospel with, with Jesus Christ on the cross as the apex of God's story, what He tells us is, is that I alone am a God who enters into the sufferings of My people. No other God even claims to do that. Isn't that amazing? Study the, the religions of the world. Whatever the God actually comes into the story and suffers alongside of us, for us. That's what our God does. Octavius Winslow said it this way, Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money? Not Pilate for fear? Not the Jews for envy? But the Father for love? That's who delivered Jesus up. Love for what? For us. Why did He love us? I don't know. I don't know why God loved me. I know my heart. I don't know why He loves me. But He does. And that's what the cross tells us. That God loves us. And if you just want to follow that rabbit trail, it never ends. You'll, you'll never get to the answer. The, the best answer that we can come up with, that theologians come up with for why God loved us and sent His Son to die for us, this is it. Now this is going to be worth price of admission. Because He loves us. That's as deep as we can go. And it's endless. That's the reality of what we find on the cross. Jesus died 
for love. He died for the glory of God, and God sent Jesus because He loved us. He entered suffering and sacrificed Himself for us. Now, what does that mean on a practical level for us? And our understanding of who God is. I think it means a number of things. First, I think it means that our sin must be worse than we can know. Have you ever thought about that? Your sin and my sin, our sin, together, it must be worse than we know. Nothing reflects the, the gravity of sin like the cross. I mean, how can any of us look at the cross and not feel, in some sense, shame? Knowing that ultimately it was our sins that sent Jesus to that cross. All of us, individually and collectively, it was sin that sent Him there. We all had a hand in it. None of us are innocent of it. And so I think when we think about the way that we look at the cross as being reprehensible, that should be just a small portion of the kind of feeling and emotion that we should have when we think of sin, but we don't. Because what what God says through the cross is, is that the cross is just a sort of a visual that gives you a small glimpse of what it looks like for the Father's relationship to be broken for a moment from the Son. So do we really understand how deep sin is? How, how disgusting, how horrible sin is? Or do we see it as something that's not that big of a deal? You know, I think the problem that we have is that we honestly live in a culture that doesn't believe the stuff exists. In fact, even C.S. Lewis, who wrote decades ago, said that in his day... The, the barrier that he met almost all the time was this total absent from the minds of his audience, any sense of sin. People just didn't think that sin existed. But what Jesus tells us in the cross is, is that sin does exist and that it's worse than we know. And that's the first message of the cross. Friends, what that means is that each of us in our lives are to be about the business of consistently looking for sin and running from it so that we can run to God. And we hate sin not because we're just supposed to hate sin, but more and more as we behold the beauty of God and what it means to be in relationship with Him, we want relationship with God. And anything that disrupts that, we hate. Sin is is an interruption of relationship with God. So we, we run from sin. Friends, run from sin in your lives. You know, this afternoon, just think about, am I struggling with sin and ignoring it and pretending like it doesn't exist? Is there pride in my heart that's really evident? I'm not running from it. I'm not praying about it. I'm not looking into the Word and seeing what God has to say about it. Could it be that you're in a relationship with another man or another woman that's not bringing glory to God? And and you just don't care because you don't understand the the extent and the, the horrible nature of sin. Friends, the horrible nature of sin is found in this, that it disrupts the relationship with the Father. It's for the Father's love that we run for sin. Not only that, we see that God's love must be more wonderful than we can comprehend. So not only is sin worse than we can know, I think that God's love is more wonderful than we can comprehend. You know, we needed a substitute, but God didn't have to do it. Did you ever think about that? God didn't have to do it. Example one, the angels. God did not send His Son to rescue fallen angels. God sent His Son to die for fallen people. 
God's love is more wonderful than we can comprehend. Because He loved us, He came after us. He chased us in Christ. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God ran to us when we weren't running to Him. In fact, the whole world turned on Christ, but Christ ran to them. God's love more wonderful than we can know. It is more than love. It is grace, which is love to the undeserving. You know, I, I can't imagine a stony heart that sees that and is it moved by that love that has been shown. If our hearts aren't moved by that, then there's a stoniness that we need to, to start to chisel away at with the truth of the gospel. Not only this, we, we know that Christ's salvation must be a free gift. Christ's salvation, it must be a free gift. I mean, just think about it. If, if it took the blood of Christ to purchase our salvation... Do you, is there really any kind of currency that you think you can add to that deal? There's nothing more valuable on heaven and earth than the blood of Christ. Is there anything that you can add, that we can add, that we can bring to the table to merit God's grace? There's nothing, there's no work that we can come and bring before God and say, here God, can I have your grace now? He says, you don't understand grace, it's free. That's the reality and the nature of God's goodness. We can't afford it. That's why we can't work for it. That's the reality of God's grace. Not only that, we know that God is neither primitive nor cruel, as many people might think as they look at the cross. The fact that God has required a sacrifice. God's neither primitive nor cruel. As I said before, all true love has a substitutionary sacrifice element to it. All love has that. If you find somebody who says that they love someone, but you don't see any sense in their lives in which they are sacrificial, substituting their own needs for another, their own, their own stuff that they have for another, then that's not real love, that's selfishness. Real love substitutes itself, sacrifices itself. If you have, if you have kids... You know, there, there are going to be ways in which you have to sacrifice your own desires, your own needs, for the needs and desires of your child. And if you don't substitute that, you know that that child's not going to grow up healthy, right? It's because that's the nature of true love. True love is sacrificial. I think this is why sacrifice is been a part of many religions because there is some knowledge of the need for a sacrifice to bring reconciliation. And when you're wronged, you know that there's a cost and somebody has to pay it, right? I mean, just imagine yourself as somebody who has a teenager. And, and that teenager begins to drive. And then that teenager begins to have friends who drive and they come over to your house. And one of these teenagers, let's just say that they, they kind of hit your car. Now, I know that teenagers get a bad rap for this kind of thing. It's not just you. Other people do this, right? But let's just say we're using a teenager. It's an illustration. And so the, the car, you've got this teenager that hits your car when he's visiting your kid. Now, there are many ways that this can be dealt with. One way that you could deal with this is, is that that child, they, they go to their insurance and you know, they pay premiums, and so, or their parents do, and so their parents end up paying for the, the car that's been hurt. So reconciliation. There's, there's a payment there. There's, there's an exchange. The other way, of course, is that you, let's say this kid doesn't have good insurance or doesn't have insurance, and um, it's not that bad, 
and you decide, you decide that you're just going to forgive it. Well, if, if you forgive in that relationship to make that relationship whole, does that mean that the damage was never done or that there's not some kind of cost that's ultimately incurred? Well, no, that, that debt is still, it's still there. I mean, it's just the, the natural way things work. It's, it's an economic principle. Somebody has to pay it at the end of the day, even if you forgive it. Well, it's the same way with God. We sinned against God. We robbed Him of His glory. And for that relationship to be restored, ultimately there has to be some kind of sacrifice that pays the price of that sin, of that debt that we have before God. It's got to be paid for the relationship to be healed and fixed. We know that there's no way in which we can pay back that debt of God's glory because even the glory that we give Him is a reflected glory. We don't make glory ourselves. God does. And so the way that God decides that He's going to deal with this is is that He is going to take this cost, this sacrifice on Himself. He'll pay the debt Himself by sending His Son to die for Him. Now here's the point where some people say, well this is essentially what this is, is it's sort of divine child abuse because He sent His Son to die for Him. Friends, that completely misunderstands the nature of who Jesus was. Jesus was fully man, He was fully Son, but He was also fully God. God on that tree absorbed the penalty Himself through His own Son dying. That was God that died on that cross. It was the Son of God, but it was fully God. And so when we see the the, the Son of God dying on the cross, what we find is God says, I paid the debt that you could not pay. Because I love you. Friends, that's not cruel, that's beautiful love. That sacrificial, substitutional love. And that's what God has shown to us. And that's revealed, what it, what it purchased for us is revealed in our second main point, which is that the veil is torn. The veil is torn. Matthew 27, 50-54, it says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, He gave up His spirit. That moment, the, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and the earth shook and rock split. The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many people who had died had been raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. You notice that in this moment, Jesus gives his spirit up. Jesus chooses when he's going to die. He had authority over his own death. And then in verse 51 the result of that death was that at that very moment, the text is very clear, at the moment of Jesus' spirit going up of his death, we're told that the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom and that the earth shook and the rock split. But what is this curtain and why is it so important? We know that in the, the temple that there were two curtains. There was one curtain that separated the most holy of holies from the holy place. And then another one that separated the holy place from the courts. We're talking about curtains. We are not talking about flimsy little curtains. These curtains were almost like walls. They were thick. And these curtains were put up to keep people, to prevent people from entering into them. So we know that for some time in the history of, of Israel, 
they had one person that was able to go into the Holy of Holies one day a year during Yom Kippur. That was the most holy person in the nation, the, most, the high priest. So the high priest would go into this, this place, this Holy of Holies, behind this curtain once a year and offer up a sacrifice before God. Blood's going everywhere. Blood's going everywhere. But, but this place is where God's Shekinah glory rested. And what this told them was year after year, the only way that you come into my presence... It's through a blood sacrifice. And it's every year. There were other sacrifices offered, but once a year, this sacrifice was offered in the fullness of the presence of God. Now catch this. It, it comes a day, Jesus Christ dies, and the very first thing that we see happen at that moment is that this curtain that had forever separated Israel from the presence of God is torn wide open. It is, it is no longer preventing them from getting into the Holy of Holies. It is no longer keeping them from experiencing the Shekinah glory of God. It is gone. Can you imagine? That might sort of affect my day if I'm a Jew. Right? I mean, that, that's going to change things. Relationships have changed. You're going to start rethinking, okay, what do I do now? I mean, what happens to Mosaic Law? What happens to all of these laws that we've been keeping faithfully that we can't keep anymore because the veil's gone. God Himself ripped it. But what we know is, is that when this veil was rent... It communicated that man was, was now allowed into the presence of God. Where he had been caught out due to his sin, he wasn't allowed into the presence of God because of his sin and God's holiness. Now, man was allowed into the presence of God. And anyone can now come to God through Jesus Christ. Not just the most holy person, because we know there's one true holy person, the great high priest Jesus Christ. So in Christ, what we now know is, is that the veil's open. Jesus has paid the debt that set us free to run to God just as Christ ran to us. We've had the way open wide open. I mean, just look at what happens when Jesus dies. This is what it means for Jesus to die, what it means for us. It says the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. Now this only happens in Matthew. Nobody, ever, nobody else talks about this. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Who are these people? These holy people that were raised from the dead when Jesus died. I think these are Old Testament saints of God. Maybe heroes of the faith. Who too needed Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus. And here Jesus has come, defining redemptive history, explaining that I'm the way for everyone. Everyone has to come through me. Even the Old Testament saints need to come through me. They need me too. Now what does it mean that these holy saints were raised up? I mean, part of me is, is sort of wondering, you know, what exactly were they doing between them coming out of the tombs and Jesus Christ being raised from the dead? Like, where did they hang out? I don't know. The text doesn't say. That's not the point. I think the point that Matthew is trying to make is, is that the death of Jesus brings life to the dead. It is necessary. The, the resurrection isn't what brings life to the dead. It shows that life is brought to the dead by the death of Christ. But it's the death of Christ that naturally results in us being brought back to life because of what He's done and what He's done in His death on the cross. It was in the cross where He died that He defeated sin, death, and the devil. The resurrection didn't do that. It proclaims that that's true. So in this defeat on the cross, Jesus rescues us.
And anyone who is in spiritual darkness is able to testify that Jesus is actually the Son of God. Even the Roman executioner, which would have been startling, even this Roman executioner, as he sees Jesus die, this Roman executioner who's seen many people die, that's his job, that's what he's in the business of, is making sure they die. But you notice in our text that even this Roman executioner is startled by what he sees in the death of Christ. And he claims and he cries out, this was the Son of God. I think this shows us that sin keeps us out of the presence of God, but that it's been defeated. And so is its consequences. And anyone who, who turns to Christ can cry with this Roman executioner that Jesus is the Son of God. This tells us that access to God is priceless. First Peter tells us that we are a kingdom of priests. And that we all have access to Jesus, to God through Jesus Christ. Friends, that stuff's priceless. It is priceless in a way that we do not know. Jesus' blood is priceless beyond comprehension. Nothing is more valuable. And so when we come to God, that is something that is infinitely Valuable. It's infinitely worthy as we come before God. We also know that we don't have to fear death anymore. Maybe some of you, it's, it's very, you, you sense that death is approaching. Friend, you don't have to fear death if you're in Christ. The resurrection is the proclamation that, that you don't have to fear death anymore because of what Christ has achieved in His death. His death makes you alive. It was death and the death of Christ that paid your debt so that you can trust that you are safe when you die. You're in the hands of God. Friend, trust that. Take hope in that. Finally, God is inviting the nations. He is proclaiming to the nations that you don't just have to be the the most holy person in Israel to come to me. In fact, anyone from any nation can come to me through my son, Jesus Christ. And this is the call to come and trust in Christ and to cling to him. So the story of the cross, it, it isn't about God enjoying suffering. We brought suffering on ourselves through sin. But there is no greater suffering than separation from God. All other sufferings are really lesser sufferings. The story of the cross is that the God of Christianity does something that no other God in any other religion has even ever pretended to do. He enters our suffering with us to save us and to restore us into a right relationship with Him. God showed us His love in paying the price that set us free. There's a place where mercy
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following is a program titled "The Lord Is My Shepherd," where we learn about our Lord, who is our Shepherd, through Psalm chapter twenty-three. Hello and welcome back. This is Jim Hughes with "The Lord Is My Shepherd." Last time, we saw how unless four conditions are met, the sheep does not lie down, and that for the sheep. To be able to lie down requires a lot of sacrifice and effort from the shepherd. We saw that the shepherd needs to protect the sheep from outside attacks, so they don't feel fear. He must walk among the sheep to ease the tight tensions between them within their community. He must care for the sheep, washing and applying medicines to keep them safe from insect pests and illnesses. And lastly. He must prepare and take care of the green pasture, so that the sheep can eat well. This means that because we are like sheep, our God, who is our good shepherd, is always making these kinds of preparations to make us lie down in green pastures. Psalm one twenty one verse four says, "Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep." The good shepherd, God, who keeps his sheep without slumber nor sleep, this God makes us lie down in green pastures and leads us to still waters. Today, I'd like us to think about the shepherd who leads you and me to still waters. We who live in the present day. Can typically find and drink water very easily at any time and anywhere. Filtered water, bottled water, tap water. Therefore, we don't feel thirsty very often. People today usually get thirsty only after having played sports or after they sweat a lot on a very hot summer day. But even in those times, we can satisfy our thirst right away, and so we don't. Think about the importance of water, nor feel particularly grateful for it. Now, in fact, it is said that as much as seventy percent of our body is made up of water, and that's the same for the sheep. Because water makes up such a great part of the body, water is an indispensable element needed for the normal functioning of the animal's metabolism. We're told that water forms part of each cell in the body, giving elasticity and maintaining the function of life. Because of that, water is an indispensable element that determines the vitality, strength, and energy of the sheep. So, if the provision of water is not adequate, physical disorder starts to happen, and when the lack of water is prolonged. There can be fatal damage to the body. We feel thirsty when our body lacks even one to two percent of its normal water. 
if that water level drops to 5 to 8% loss, our body loses the ability to control temperature, the pulse and respiration increases, and we will experience impeded concentration, dizziness, and confusion. And if the lack of water reaches 10%, it can lead to death. It makes us think again about the importance of water. But the only one that can provide such water to the sheep is the shepherd. The shepherd must always work hard and prepare diligently to seek and find water for his sheep. Generally, the sheep can get water in three different ways. First, from the dew on the grass. Second, from a well. And then third, from a spring of water or a brook. The astonishing thing is that if the sheep drinks enough dew each morning from the grass, the sheep can endure several months without drinking other water. Therefore, the diligent shepherd wakes up before dawn and takes the sheep to the pasture so they can drink enough from the dew. The shepherd that gets up early for the sheep, he won't be willing to do so if he doesn't love them, right? Can you picture yourself as the sheep that goes out early in the morning following the shepherd to the pasture and drinking plenty of dew for the day? He wakes us up at dawn. The needed water for the day? Christ, the living water. Do you see yourself in reading God's word and abiding within that word like the sheep that drinks plenty of dew in the early morning and can live without drinking from other water. If our lives included drinking in the word of truth early each morning, we would be able to live abundantly in God's grace without feeling any worldly thirst throughout our days. The good shepherd takes the sheep early in the morning to take in the water of the dew. And if there is not much dew, then he leads them to the well and lets them drink water there. Could the sheep drink water out of the well by themselves? Of course not. To give water to the sheep, the good shepherd must work hard, drawing water from deep within this well. He doesn't give up drawing the water from the well just because it's strenuous. The shepherd also finds a clean spring of water or brook beforehand and then leads the sheep to it. He doesn't just take the sheep trying to look for a brook and water them if he finds a good one and doesn't otherwise. The good shepherd knows already his surrounding environment and geography and he leads his sheep to the clean water. Giving them clean water is indispensable to sustain their lives. This doesn't just apply to the sheep. Drinking dirty and contaminated water harms the health and can even produce fatal effects in one's life. I watched a movie when I was young where some people were very thirsty and were having a hard time adrift in the ocean. I wondered 
If they're that thirsty, couldn't they drink the water from the ocean? Then the adults with me told me that the water of the ocean is salty, and so if they were to drink it, they'll get even thirstier. I thought to myself, then if they get thirsty, they can drink some more water. Water is everywhere. But if we drink the ocean water in that manner, too much salt enters our bodies, and the water in our body will be used to decompose the salt. Our cells will suffer from lack of water, and we eventually will die. We cannot drink just any water. Only clean water is the indispensable element to animals that have life. Therefore, the Good Shepherd always works diligently to provide clean water to the sheep. Many people in this world suffer from spiritual thirst. They try many worldly drinks to satisfy their spiritual thirst. It could be cultural lifestyle like music and art. It could also be one's hobby, something that one enjoys doing. It could be pursuing a deep scholasticism, worldly philosophy, or even religion. Those things may calm the spiritual thirst momentarily, however it can never satisfy the root of the thirst. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life, reads John 4, verses 13 and 14. The water that we can find from this world will make us thirsty again, and those things will never fully satisfy our thirst. If we drink contaminated water, such as a Christless philosophy, religion, ideology, or even hobby or culture, those things can produce fatal injury to our spiritual health. Actually, many people believe and drink of the contaminated water instead of the spring water, thinking that it will satisfy their thirst. But they end up dying. The Lord, our God, is our Good Shepherd. He takes our yokes off and leads us and makes us drink of the true water, the source of spring water that will make us never thirst again, Jesus Christ. And he makes us rest through him. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. We'll end here today. Please join in listening next time to The Lord is My Shepherd.
Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have need. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine with ten thousand besides faithfulness great is thy faithfulness morning by morning new mercies I see all I have needed thy hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness Great is
Prisoners who received a death sentence, but Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, paid the price for our sin, and He gave us life and gave it more abundantly. This is why God gave His one and only Son, that if we call on the name of Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. God raised Him up from death, and those who accept Jesus as their Savior are called righteous because Jesus already paid for our sin. In other words, We died with Jesus, and now we live with Jesus. On the last day, when we stand before God, those that accept this gift of the Savior will be given a verdict of not guilty because Jesus paid it all in full. We sinners who deserve death can now live. We have moved from death to life. It's not because of any good thing we have done, but because of God's grace poured out on us. How can we not praise our God with joy? Romans chapter 6 verses 15 through 18 say, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God did not just kill a lamb to save us. He let His Son die for us. He saved and bought us for a great price, the price of His Son's blood, for those of us who believe Jesus gave us His life that we might live a life pleasing to God. Following the firstborn Jesus, we would too become more holy and righteous. We should firmly trust in God and let the Holy Spirit guide us so that we give our all and live as children of God, whole and holy. So let us run with endurance and finish the race set before us. Let us appear as light in this dark world. We will now wrap up unity in Christ Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless.
sacrifice You freely paid the highest price Suffering, you traded blood for me My heart was seen the deepest place My lips were choice, my hands were raised For the dead that brought me into life Great love.